there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. I want to talk to you young people. And you old folks, you can just listen or you can get up and leave, do whatever, whatever you want. But I have a few questions that I want to ask to the young people this evening. I love you, and I die a thousand deaths over some of the crazy stuff that I'm receiving from young people in my mail. And that's another thing that amazes me, uh, because I do have this radio broadcast. I get lots and lots of letters from young people. And some of them describe the most appalling messes and crazy, stupid things that they get themselves into. It doesn't have to be that way, you know. God loves you with an everlasting love. And he has arranged things in a perfectly marvelous way. And this is my husband, Lars Grin. I'd like you to meet him, if you'd turn around and smile. <laughs> He's wondering if anyone is having trouble hearing. Would you raise your hands if you're having trouble hearing? I see about five people way at the back there, Lars, in the middle section. You want me to keep talking? <laughs> well, I have some questions that I want to ask you. First of all, what are you aiming at? I want you to stop and think. What is the primary purpose of your life? What is it that you are aiming for? And I have a scripture verse that I would hope many of you know. It's in 1 John 2.17. And this is a passage that I used many times after my husband Jim Elliott was killed, along with four other American missionaries. There were a number of reporters who came to us widows and wanted to know why these men did what they did. It didn't make any sense to a lot of people, but to some of you I'm sure it makes very good sense. But I gave them the words from John 2.17, 1 John 2.17. The world and all its passionate desires will one day disappear. But the man who is following the will of God is part of the permanent and cannot die. Now that happens to be Philip's translation, but you can look it up in whatever translation you're using. 1 John 2.17, the world and all its passionate desires will one day disappear. Don't you forget that. But the man who is following the will of God is part of the permanent and cannot die. And so Jim Elliot and the other four men were part of the permanent, even though, in a human sense, they died. Well, ask yourself, what am I aiming for? That's point one. Point two, who is your master? Now, when I was a college student at Wheaton College, way back in the dark ages, 1948, there was a young man on the campus that I had been eyeing 
from a distance. But, of course, I had no thoughts whatsoever that this young man could possibly ever be looking at me. I had always been a wallflower from grade school, junior high, high school, college. And so I just got in the line of girls that was hoping that Jim Elliott would write his name in their yearbook. And I got my place in line, and of course when I got up to Jim Elliott, he opened the book and he found his picture and he scribbled his name, scribbled, and when I say he wrote very flourishing hand, handwriting. And I was tickled to death to realize that he had written something else there, but he didn't give me a chance to see what it was. He shut the book real fast, gave it back to me, and took the next girl's book. And, <laughs> and so you can imagine how long it took me to find out what else he had written on there besides his name. And lo and behold, it was a scripture verse. 2 Timothy 2.4 A soldier on active service will not become entangled in civilian affairs. He must be wholly at his commanding officer's disposal. So I don't know whether Jim had any inkling whatsoever that I was the least bit interested in him, but I was extremely interested in him, of course, and I was hoping that there would be something really sweet and cute that he'd written there, but there wasn't anything sweet or cute about this. This was a no-nonsense decision that he had made. Who is your master? Jesus Christ had already been chosen by Jim as his master. And so he wanted me to know, and I don't know how many other girls' books he might have written the same words in, but it was very clear to me that Jim was making it quite clear that he was not going to be entangled in civilian affairs. He wanted to be a soldier at his commanding officer's disposal. So that's the second question for you. The third question is, whose are you? And I read to you from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. So let's start with 18 to 20. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God in your body. And I want to tell you that my mother, when I was about 13 years old, she told me two things to tell to, about guys. She said, never chase boys. Well, there wasn't a whole lot of, li of likelihood that I was going to do that because I was so shy and so sure that no, none of the boys would ever be interested in me anyway. And my mother was a very beautiful woman, and she had had three proposals before my father came along, but she just wanted to be sure that she gave this piece of wisdom to me as a 13-year-old. Always don't chase boys and the second thing is, always keep them at arm's length. And you know, if everybody kept those rules, 
we wouldn't be having these surprise pregnancies. The guys would not be receiving a phone call that says, guess what? You're going to be a daddy. That most horrible piece of news that a young man could possibly have. Well, whose are you? You are bought with a price. You only have one body. You can only give it away one time for sexual purposes. After that, what does it become? One thing after another. And of course you know, we all know, that God ordained marriage to be a wonderful thing, a beautiful thing, to be sex a beautiful thing, but something which is meant only for a lifetime commitment. What are you aiming for? Who is your master? Whose are you? Now, what do you expect from the world? Let me look for second, let's see, second Timothy 3.12. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, you may not be persecuted in a physical way, but it's very likely that you're going to be thought of as some sort of a kook. You know, somebody that doesn't want to do what everybody else is doing. Oh, well, you know, that person, just you can write them off. But what do you expect from the world? Do you want to live a life godly in Christ Jesus? Are you willing to be thought some kind of a kook? It's really not that difficult, you know. You could stand up to that with the help of God. And then in 1 Peter 3, we find another warning. 1 Peter 3, 14 to 17. Even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now I know that some of you have read my book called Passion and Purity. The reason I wrote that book way back in the early 80s, I think it was, was just because I was hearing about such chaos and such misery and such sorrow that was happening on college campuses. And I remembered how faithful God had been in keeping Jim Elliott and me from sexual sin. And I was about to graduate. I lived in New Jersey. Jim Elliott lived in Oregon. He had, was a year behind me. I was going to Africa, I thought. He was going to South America. It didn't look as though there was any way in the world that God was ever going to bring us together again. But he asked me to go for a walk just a, couple, a week or so before I graduated. And I was thrilled. I had absolutely no idea that Jim had any ideas about me. But we started to walk down the sidewalk on a beautiful May morning. 
And we hadn't gone very far when he stopped and he said, Bep, he said, we're not going to go back and sit, we're not going to go back to the dorm right now. He said, I just want to tell you something. I love you. Well, of course, my, all the fireworks went off in my mind and I was just stunned and thrilled to death. But he said, as far as I know, God wants to meet, wants me to, rem to be a missionary, perhaps for the rest of my life. He said, I don't know that God is ever going to give me a wife. Maybe I'm supposed to be single for the rest of my life. Then he said, let's not go back to the dorm. Let's go back and sit in the park where we had just had a picnic with a whole bunch of other kids. And we sat down in the park facing each other. And we were keeping my mother's rule of arm's length. Because when you're facing each other, you know, you can easily be at arm's length. And we talked for seven hours. And Jim said to me, I've told you that I love you. I don't know if God is ever going to give you to me for a wife. But he said, I want you to know that I am not going to lay a finger on you. Because you don't belong to me. You belong to Jesus Christ. Now that was a pretty powerful statement for a young man. With all the young man's juices running in his blood. And he kept that that desire and decision and we talked and we talked and we talked about the ways in which God had been leading us together in ways we hadn't thought about I found out that, that here was this guy Jim Elliott who had actually been reading Amy Carmichael books he had been memorizing, memorizing some of Amy Carmichael's poems he had been memorizing the same hymns that I had learned at home and there were just there were myriad things that looked as though we would just fit together perfectly. But I was going to New Jersey, he was going to Oregon, there was no chance we were ever going to see each other again, humanly speaking. But one evening, shortly before my graduation, he wanted to go for a walk again. And we wandered into a cemetery without even paying much attention to where we were wandering, and we sat down on a convenient slab And I had been thinking that day about the fact that we were really sort of trying to hang on to some rather thin strings with each other. We were not making a complete commitment of saying, forget it, we're going to leave this in God's hands, which is what we had decided. But we want, we, there was just this urge to somehow keep in touch. And so I sat there, and it took me a while to screw up my courage to say what I wanted to say, but I said, you know, Jim, do you think it really is honest with God for us to correspond? Because he had suggested that maybe we could carry on a correspondence by mail. And I said, if we're really serious about leaving this whole thing totally in God's hands, wouldn't it be best not to correspond? Well, it was a long thunderous silence. And finally he said, you know, Bet, you're right. He said, I know you're right because this morning my passage that I was reading in the Bible was the story of Abraham and Isaac. And he said, when God told Abraham to give that living sacrifice, Abraham obeyed.
And he took the young boy, and he took the animal, and he took the wood, and he took his servant, and he went up the hill, and he laid the wood on the altar. And then he laid his son on the altar. And it was a total surrender to God. He had no way, but Abraham had no way of knowing that God was going to raise that son in a miraculous way. And Jim said, all I can tell you is this morning in my Bible time, my quiet time together with the Lord, he said, God enabled me to put you on the altar. And that's where you're going to stay unless God provides a lamb in some form. And so again, the two of us sat quietly, not saying anything for quite a while. And suddenly we realized that the moon had, his, hid, had risen behind us and was casting the shadow of a, a stone cross between us. And Amy Carmichael wrote a poem, Lord Crucified, O mark thy holy cross on motive, preference, all fond desires, on that which self in any form inspires, set thou that sign of loss. And when the touch of death is here and there laid on a thing most precious in our eyes, let us not wonder. Let us recognize the answer to our prayer. Well, it was five and a half years before God brought us together. Five and a half agonizing years for me. I didn't go to Africa. There were all sorts of things that happened in those, during those five years, ways in which God was steering me in a different direction. I didn't know when or where or how. But finally the day came when Jim had been working in the eastern jungle of Ecuador with a buddy named Pete Fleming. And they had been there for more than a year, and Jim was quite convinced that a woman, a wife, would not necessarily be a hindrance to his jungle work. In fact, I was doing the same kind of work on the other side of the Andes, way over in the western side, working with a tribe called Colorados at that time. And so the day came when, the night came, when I heard a horse galloping into my front yard in this little clearing in the jungle. And a telegram was delivered, and it was from Jim. This was about 11 o'clock at night, I guess. And he said, please meet me in Quito tomorrow. So the next morning I had to get on my horse, rode four, my, four uh, hours to the nearest little town, and I got onto a banana truck, which took me ten hours up to the capital city of Quito. And Jim was waiting for me there, and that evening we sat in front of a fire, and he said, will you marry me? Now that was a very, very long wait. But how thankful we were that we waited. And of course we were only engaged. And so the day finally came when our wedding day took place a number of months after that. We went to Panama. We stayed in a gorgeous hotel that had just been built. And we went to dinner that evening. And when we'd finished our dinner, Jim looked at me across the candle, candles. And he said, Bet, 
I can hardly believe that we have a bed waiting for us upstairs. I wish it were like that for every young man and woman who wants to keep himself pure for God. I know how hard it is, but I also know how glorious it is. And you can write me off as some old lady from some other eon long before you ever heard of anything. Or you can go by what this book says. You know, this was not our idea, these passages that I've read to you. It's in the book. It doesn't change. And with all my heart, I want to say to young people, keep your hands off. Keep your clothes on and stay out of bed. Now, I would be very naive if I thought I was talking to a whole bunch of young virgins here. I have no doubt that there are a number of virgins, be they male or female. But I also feel quite sure that a few of you, perhaps quite a few of you, have blown it. You gave away something that was not yours to give away. You took something from somebody else that God had not given you to take. What do you do now? Oh, well, might as well forget it. Might as well just keep on blowing it. No. What does the Bible tell us? The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from how much sin? All sin. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And you can come to the foot of the cross and say, Lord Jesus, receive my soul. Deliver me. Pardon me. And give me grace to walk in purity from now on. You can start over. God is not going to give you back your virginity. But God is going to give you a new start. You know, virginity is something you can only give away once. Have you thought earnestly and long about the person to whom you want to give it? Or was it just one night, you weren't thinking very much, maybe you'd had a few drinks, and you wake up the next morning, you want to kick yourself around the block, and it's all done, it's over with, it's finished. But then you can come to the foot of the cross. And the last line in my book called Passion and Purity tells of a Scottish preacher who was serving the communion at the end of the service. And a young girl was kneeling there with tears pouring down her face. And when he offered to her the cup, she shook her head. But he looked at her with such tenderness and he said, Take it, lassie. It's for sinners. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Now God is in the business of repair and he can completely make your life over. And I just want to beseech you with all of my heart to trust God to do that for you. Get down on your bed tonight, beside your bed tonight, 
and ask the Lord's forgiveness. Maybe you can do it before you get there. Maybe you have a prayer partner. Maybe there's an older person, perhaps a, a teacher, a professor, or somebody, to whom you can go. Now, what kind of a battle do you expect this life to involve? Once again, Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 5. Though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That's an exercise, a stiff one, to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. And of course, Christ reads your thoughts, so you might as well read them back to him and ask him to make it obedient. And he is in the business of transformation. I want to give you another one. Galatians, Ephesians 6.10 Finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And who is it that's always after us? It's the enemy of God. It's the devil. But there is a full armor. Be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Schemes, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. And Paul says at the end of that letter to the Ephesians, pray that I may declare the gospel fearlessly as I should. And I try to do that every time I have an opportunity to talk with young people. With all my heart, I want to save you from the messes that the world is constantly presenting to you. And I know that there is such a thing as being strong in the Lord. Isaiah 50, verse 7, is one of my life verses. The Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. And a 19-year-old young man came to me and he said, God has enabled me to remain sexually pure so far. He said, I've got to graduate from college, and then I've got to go through uh, law school. He said, I don't know if I can make it till I'm 25. And I said to him, you don't have to make it till you're 25. You only have to make it today. You only have one day at a time. And God is going to give you sufficient grace and strength to keep your virginity in that one day. Forget about yesterday, it's gone. Forget about tomorrow, that's not here yet. You don't have any way of knowing you're going to be alive by the time you think you're going to be alive at 25. 
but you can maintain your purity for one day. And I remember one of the hymns that we used to sing in our family prayers was, Yield not to temptation, for yielding is sin. Each victory will help you some other to win. Fight manfully onward, dark passions subdue. Look ever to Jesus, he will carry you through. Ask the Savior to help you, comfort and strengthen and keep you. He is willing to aid you. He will carry you through. Anton Chekhov wrote a very interesting story, the Russian writer, of course. The story is called Verochka, V-E-R-O-T-C-H-K-A. And it's a very interesting story about a little girl, a girl who is a servant girl in a very, very wealthy family of which the prince is one of the people. And she learns that the prince is about to leave to go to war. And somehow or other they happen to find themselves near the gate on a dark, on a moonlight night. And he, being a very gracious man and of course a very well-bred man, when he sees this little servant girl whom he had seen trotting around the house in various times, he speaks to her, tells her that he will be leaving tomorrow and thanks her for the work that she's been doing. But she doesn't seem to be able to open her mouth. She just stands there with her head hanging. And he doesn't know what to do. He's dumbfounded. You know, this is a strange and awkward position. She's not answering me. And he asks her, what's the matter? And she just shakes her head. And I've forgotten how many times he tries to find out what it is, what is the problem. And he said, he says finally, um, what is the trouble? And she said, oh, it is a terrible thing. And he said, can you tell me? She said, no. It is too terrible. It is a terrible thing. Well, he finally gets it out of her and she says, I love you. That reminded me of what my mother had told me. You're not a woman is not supposed to give away anything. You know, you men nowadays, college men, you don't have to do very much because the women are going to be throwing themselves at you. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. There was a time back in my day, a thousand years ago, when we just took it for granted that the men had to be the aggressors and we weren't going to pay any attention to them whatsoever until they showed some sort of interest in us. And certainly the prince had never shown any kind of sexual interest in this little maid. So he was absolutely dumbfounded as to what the problem was until she came out with it and said, I love you. And Chekhov's statement in that was she, having avowed her love, and cast forever away her woman's enhancing inaccessibility seemed smaller, simpler, and meaner. In other words, she had ruined her chances with this man, if he would have ever had any. She seemed smaller, simpler, and meaner. And the word mean in Chekhov's era 
means destitute of distinction, ordinary, inferior, of little account or value, worthy of little or no regard, shabby, lacking dignity of mind, destitute of honor. And the more I read that distinction, the more I want to say to you women, keep your mouth shut. Don't give them anything to work on. That's what my second husband told me. We, we talked a great deal. He was a much older man than I was, and he'd been married and had three daughters, and had seen a great deal of life. And we talked a lot about the seminary students that he was a professor for. And one of the things he kept saying, he said, if you could only get them, get the women not to give the men anything to work on. And the more distant you are, and the more at arm's length you are, the more likely it is that the man may become interested and think, what is it with this woman? And you know, after I graduated from college, I had, more, I had at least one man say to me, you know, I used to watch you on the college campus. He said, I was always wondering what in the world's going through that woman's head. Well, he never found out from me. And then I went to Bible school, and I went to a Bible school in Alberta, Canada, where it was absolutely forbidden for men and women to even look at each other, let alone speak to each other. Now, of course, nobody could stop you from looking, but we had a little ditty that we used to sing, you can smile when you can't say a word. But um, this is true, Prairie Bible Institute did not allow any kind of Congress between the men and the women. Everything was arranged so there was a men's side and a men's dormitory and a men's part of the uh, the food place and women had everything on their side and there were just no ways in any way in the world that we could communicate with members of the opposite sex. And a man who was in that school at that time had gone to Africa as a missionary and years later in a mission conference, I think, we must have run into each other. And he came up to me and he said, you know, I used to watch you at Prairie and I used to wonder all the time, I wonder what in the world is going through that woman's head. Now, I wasn't doing anything consciously like this. I was simply carrying on what my mother had set out. And now you know that I have had not one, not two, but three husbands. Number three is still standing back there. He's okay, as far as I know. <laughs> and you can imagine how many young women have said to me, I don't understand why the Lord gave you three husbands when he's never even given me a date. <laughs> what am I to say? All I can say is, I don't know why. I just know that this was the mercy of God and this was God's choice to take Jim Elliot when he was 27 months married, to take Addison Leach when he died of cancer at four and a half years of marriage, and to give me Lars Grin, with whom I have been almost for 20, 23 years. But, you know, I just want you to know that I love you young people. I just thank you so much for all the lovely things you said to me just in the time before I came out here on the platform. Thank you for the privilege. I spent a summer here in Norman, Oklahoma. I was with, uh, I was studying under the Wycliffe group, and back in those days, uh, I used to go up to the top of the stadium 
very early in the morning, sometimes very late watching the sunset. And of course, usually thinking about Tim Elliott because I had just left him behind in a few weeks before that when I had graduated and had come here to Norman. And it was really quite agonizing because we were not corresponding. I didn't know if I was ever going to see him again. And to make it even a little bit more poignant, his brother was here in the same class with me. His brother being an older man and he is has been married for 52 years and is still a missionary in Peru. He and his wife never were given any children, but God gave them hundreds, if not thousands, of spiritual children. The whole world, the whole Christian world, knows the name Jim Elliot. Who ever heard of Bert Elliot? Well, hundreds of people in Peru who loved him. But he's not a byword like Jim. And we were with him not very long ago. Just a simple, humble, godly man with a wonderful sense of humor, a wonderful wife. And it had been a great sorrow for them that God did not give them children. But God gave them literally hundreds of spiritual children. And they had a 50th anniversary party there in Peru where hundreds came from the high Andes, from the deep jungles, from all over Peru to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Bert and Colleen Elliott. I'm so thrilled to know that there are so many of you young people thinking about going to the mission field. It is a wonderful life. Thank God if he calls you to that. Many of you have already had some experience of, of summer missions, no doubt, and many of you may be looking forward to summer missions, and I do hope and pray that God will give you grace to pursue that calling, if that is what God is asking of you. And if you do so, may you remember that God loves you, and he wants the very best for you. And in my book, Quest for Love, this is a compilation of some wonderful stories of the ways in which God has brought men and women together without dating. The dating scene is chaos. We can do without it. God has some other wonderful ways of bringing you, to you and your spouse together. My husband and I were asked for advice by a young man who described to us the woman he was interested in and had, in fact, been dating for more than two years. She was a dedicated Christian, attractive, fun to be with, etc. In fact, she's everything I want in a wife, he said. Are you engaged, we asked. Oh, no, I can't do that. You've been dating for more than two years and you haven't proposed? Why? Well, because I don't know how she feels about me, he said. Must the lady put all her cards on the table? My husband said, I'll tell you how to find out real fast. <laughs> how, he said. Ask her to marry you, then she'll tell you how she feels. <laughs> May God give us grace to trust him. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. <laughs>